This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, a look back at the events that have shaped 2011. And General Sir David Richards tells us how he sees the past year in Afghanistan. Anyone who's questioned whether the surge would work has been proved pretty thoroughly wrong. And uh, I just think it's excellent and I'm very proud of it. We'll also reflect on the Libya campaign and take a look back at this year's defence cuts. And we look forward to what 2012 might bring. Welcome to this special end-of-term edition of SITREP. We've decamped to the BBC's Broadcasting House for our review of the year programme. Joining me around the table today, fresh out of Afghanistan, BFBS reporter Jeff Mead, Michael Codner, who's Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute, and, as always, our very own BFBS defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you. Now, we've got a lot to get through in the next half hour, so let's kick off with Afghanistan. This week, both the Prime Minister and the Chief of the Defence Staff flew out to Afghanistan to give a morale-boosting visit to British troops. A sandstorm prevented them from going to Camp Bastion, but our reporter James Hurst caught up with General Sir David Richards at Kandahar Air Base and asked him how he thought 2011 had gone for Op Herrick. Well, I think it's a year of steady progress is probably how I'd characterise it. I mean, real progress with the ANSF, um, and that will become increasingly our main effort. And you know, it's palpable. You can see an improvement in morale as well as capability. They, low start point, but uh, those working with them confirm, and I've seen a bit of it in my own eyes, that it's going well. And that is our, our route out with our heads held high. And in the meanwhile, if you look at the amount that our guys have done, on the ground in Helmand and elsewhere. It's pretty staggering, actually. Big reduction in violence. You know, anyone who's questioned whether the surge would work has been proved pretty thoroughly wrong, and uh, I just think it's excellent, and I'm very proud of it. Do you think 2011 could go down as the year that international forces turned the corner in Afghanistan? It's a good question. I think it could. I think one year's probably too sharp. 2012 will be very important too. And maintaining pressure uh, during the winter is going to be very important. Um, but I think we get that right. I'm pretty confident that by the end of next year, as the US surge does start to wind down more aggressively, uh, we'll have pulled off quite a trick. So as we go into 2012, what are the priorities and also the challenges for British and international forces in Afghanistan? Well, the priority must be to let transition continue as per the plan. That's, for most people here in the military, is all about um, the ANSF and making sure that we keep pace with the planned growth and improvement in quality. And I suppose if I had a message to people, that must be your main effort over here. But in the meanwhile, we've got a proper job doing, you know, just sort of protecting the population the way General Allen's plan says we must. So I think, I think those are the two priorities. The biggest challenge will be not allowing a clever opponent to persuade people back in London, Washington, everywhere, that actually they've got some sort of upper hand when they clearly, in my judgment, most people's judgment, they haven't, but they're very good at this psychological game of warfare. 
Well, that was General Sir David Richards talking to BFBS reporter James Hurst. Uh, Jeff Mead, uh, first of all, let's hear from you. Uh, do you think it's been a year of steady progress? Kate, forgive me if I sound a bit cynical, but I've been going to Afghanistan for ten years, two or three times a year, uh, and I've lost count of the number of times that senior military officials have told me we're making progress, we're on plan, the enemy's on the back foot. Having said that, and having spent pretty much half of 2011 in, in Afghanistan, I do think there is something in what Sir David Richards says. There is progress, violence is down, places like Lashkagar are transformed uh, with the handover to local security forces. There is a tangible feeling of much more safety and security. There are still outrages, they will still sadly continue, but I think uh, there is progress there, you can, you can sense it. There's also something that never existed before, a rule of law, a, a functioning court system System, which seems to engage the loyalty and the trust of the local population. So, so definite signs in. But I think Stuart Tootle is right. Uh, he commanded the Paras when they first went into Helm, and I spoke to him recently. Uh, he said, um, yes, there are gains but they're pretty fragile, and I think that's the next year's work, is to cement those gains. Mm. Christopher Lee, what do you make of General Richard's comment about opponents and psychological warfare? I mean, when he says that people in Washington and London, I want to know which people in Washington and London. The general publics in the United States and the United Kingdom think, what the heck are we actually doing in Afghanistan? So you can write off those people because nothing that the general says is going to change their minds. The important thing is the, uh, in an election there in the United States, what the Democrats think, what the Republicans say. Two... In the United Kingdom, where there is financial pressures and a lot of people understanding, certainly the people in Whitehall I speak to, understanding that there isn't public support for this, uh, this conflict, that's the difficulty. Then he says, for example, it depends what happens in the winter. You've got to maintain the pressure in the winter. So 2012 summer, the so-called fighting uh, time or the, or the open warfare time, that's going to be the crucial test. Uh, you say, people are saying, why on earth are we in Afghanistan? The original reason was because it was harbouring Osama bin Laden. Do you think his death is a game-changer? Uh, no. I think the game had, to some extent, had already changed. I mean, getting uh, Osama bin Laden was really a question in American terms, sort of jobs done. It decreased yet again the relations with the United States and Pakistan, which is very important, um, and I think we should not uh, disregard the effects of using predator and cross-border lifting and killing of people by special forces. Those were the game-changers of 2011. Michael Codner, how do you think the year has gone in Afghanistan? Well, militarily, um, I, I would agree with uh, General Richards that, that it has been... <laughs> As, as we've used the word, fragile success, and, and that things are moving ahead as, uh, as they need to. And the problem, of course, is uh, the issue of uh, governance and whether the government, the government, in whatever form it takes after the final withdrawal, actually survives um, uh, in the way that uh, is, is hoped for. And that, of course, is not... Um, the military can stabilise, but they can't actually uh, do anything about that. So uh, the future is a big question mark. We see in Iraq, uh, 
just recently the um, the killings yesterday and uh, at a critical time in Iraq over the US elections troops have and gone the and therefore suddenly things start to change. Suddenly things. Now that may be very temporary. This may be just a peak of violence and then Iraq will settle down again. But uh, Afghanistan, in many ways, is much more problematic over uh, co continuity of firm government. Uh, Jeff, um, you've been in Afghanistan twice in the last year. Um, you were talking about the governance. What did you get any chance to see how it is to be convinced about how stable and how free of corruption it is? Um, the delicate, delicate balance is who do the people trust? Do they yet trust their own government? Do they uh, have any confidence in their own security forces? Are they less hostile towards ISAF? I think there is a subtle shift happening there. I think as, particularly as the Americans have poured in forces, that has had a decreasing effect on Taliban military activity, that there is a sense that the, the people of Afghanistan now sense, yes, the game is changing and maybe the government can hold it. But I subscribe absolutely to Michael's point. It's all extremely vulnerable and it could go very badly wrong uh, once uh, foreign combat forces uh, are out of there in less than three years. Still to come, it's all about the money, how the world economy has changed defence spending and alliances. And Christopher's crystal ball will tell us what to watch out for in 2012. PFBS SIPREP. Well, this time last year, few of us had any idea about the huge protests which would sweep across North Africa and the Middle East. What later became known as the Arab Spring began in Tunisia with the downfall of President Ben Ali. Demonstrations spread to Egypt, where President Mubarak was deposed, and then to Libya, where a lengthy campaign by rebels and NATO forces eventually led to the death of the country's leader, Colonel Gaddafi. Protests, some of which turned violent, were also seen in Jordan, Yemen, Bahrain and Syria. Uh, Michael Codner, were you surprised by these events or was it something you'd seen coming? I, I wasn't surprised by uh, the, um, the nature of the events and the fact that it was the North Africa uh, where all this began. This seemed to me for a very long time ago, going right back to the 1998 strategic defence review, that one of the critical issues as far as United Kingdom was concerned would actually be uh, outbreaks of disorder in North Africa, wherever it's going to be, because that's on our doorstep and we would have to do evacuation of non-competence and all of these things. Um, uh, the actual timing, yes, of course. There's been an awful lot said that no-one was prepared. Well, of course not. These things take... Um, it takes time to react, and, uh, uh, and the exact timing is always going to be something that we can't expect. But uh, chaos in North Africa is something, I think, was, that has been on the cards for a very, very long time. Christopher, the, the Arab Spring has been welcomed by the West, who see it as a, an awakening of democracy. Do, do you think what the West is projecting in terms of expectations will be fulfilled? Well, you go onto the streets of Egypt and ask them about democracy. Go to Tripoli and ask them about democracy. Uh, Tunisia might have better luck. What about the protests in Yemen? Ask them about democracy. They ain't seen it and they ain't going to. Uh, what about Bahrain? Uh, the internal inquiry in Bahrain itself by the authorities there showed things were wrong. But, but it's not going to improve the sense of what we wrongly think in so-called West, is the form of democracy which should be instituted on other countries. It's not so much about democracy, I think it's about um, delivering on the expectations of the younger generation, whether it's through democracy or a more um, 
paternalistic I government. I mean, it's which progress, in... isn't it? Even if you, you don't say it as democracy as such. Yeah, I'm not going out for the idea of democracy spreading. Uh, it, is, it is taking a very young population, which is rather well-educated, which don't have jobs, and them saying, we have expectations. And more importantly than ever, anything else, this sort of thing could not have happened, let's say, 10, 12 years ago, when there weren't iPhones. Come to the rallies. Come to the beginnings of democracy. You're not so sure, are you, Michael? You're, you're nodding your head in a kind of, mm, I'm not, not so sure. Not on this scale, not right across. <laughs> It is obviously a huge enabler, but um, going back in history, right back to the Roman period, you have, uh, you have uh, riots and revolutions where the message spreads pretty quickly, verbally, <laughs> rather, than, um, rather than through electronic means. Uh. All right, um, let's move on to Libya, because NATO decided to get involved, uh, saying it was for humanitarian reasons. Do you think it was the wise thing for them to do, Christopher? Um, well, NATO was in such a mess and didn't, I mean, in spite of the so-called success, didn't behave brilliantly well in, in, in this whole thing. Well, we, what 1973, the, the reso uh, resolution that really governed it, was overwhelmed by the ambition to actually do away, regime change, to do away and how closely you could get involved. But of nobody course, that minded. never was the line that was given, no, ever. No, of course not. And, and nobody particularly minded, um, simply because, the, uh, for example, the Arab League or parts of the Arab League, were saying, please come and help us. So the whole thing was, was OK because nobody much liked Gaddafi, uh, hadn't even any supporters within his own kind, if you like, across, uh, across the, the, certainly across the whole of North, North Africa, Saharan Africa and the Maghreb. And this is where, for example, two years ago, a Foreign Office uh, briefing paper showed that it was very likely that something like the Arab Spring would take place and that it would spread once it took place, but they didn't actually say it was going to take place in Libya. The only way you could get it to take place in Libya, they thought, was perhaps with, 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 with the help of outsiders. And NATO were the only people who would do it collectively under one umbrella rather than just one country doing it. Uh, Jeff Mead, uh, the Libya campaign came at a time when the MOD was making serious cuts to its budgets, uh, aircraft carriers without harriers. How do you think history will judge the whole episode? Will it judge it as a success, do you think? I think Christopher's point is well made, that you, you had an unpopular leader, you had oil, of course, which is the other important factor in, in Libya. There was a motive to, to, to get in there and get involved, and you had the, the ability to do it. Um, I think once America backed away, though, then really NATO had to get involved. It was, a, it was almost a conflict in which NATO had little choice. And at that time, it seems a long time ago, remember we were quite pally with the French and the idea of Anglo-French cooperation on a mission like this, which was perceived as win-win, it was uh, mounted, as we've, as we've discussed, on the pretext of pre prevent, pre preventing uh, needless civilian deaths, uh, became a regime changer which suited everybody. I think actually NATO have come out of it quite well. It's given them another a renewed sense of purpose mm. and probably extended their life for a little bit longer. Uh, uh, that, of course, depends very much on political will and the money, but I should think... Uh, the, mo the money being a crucial one, obviously. In, in, indeed, but mm. I would think uh, there, there, are, there is a, a, an understandable degree of satisfaction in NATO about the way that's, that this has gone. Uh, and, Michael, do, do you think uh, Libya will mark a change in how British get involved in conflicts in the future? I think it certainly represents um, what one might have thought was the British way up until Afghanistan, and that is uh, these more selective um, um, and limited campaigns which don't necessarily commit to long-term uh, occupation on the ground, as Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan have. Um, the, 
sort of strategic raiding uh, concept was very much poo-pooed, uh, um, particularly by the army, um, after Iraq and Afghanistan. But you can see that this is the only thing that's going to get any real support from, um, from the electorate um, uh, in, the, in the foreseeable future. We're not going to be in the business of regime change in terms of occupation um, and stabilisation and counterinsurgency. I think Libya also highlighted vividly why the whole question of defence cuts are so risky, because simply you you cannot predict what is ahead. None of us would have foreseen the Arab Spring. It was a pretty expensive mission for Britain, and close run if you look at the supply of those uh, uh, munitions. Uh, It was tight, and I think that that will uh, favour those who say let's take defence cuts much more cautiously than we've embarked on so far. Christopher? you, You know, we hear these things about Syria... And people say, well, why can't we go and do a a Libya on Syria? Libya proved that you can't do it. Uh, You could go after a certain target, you could do it in a certain way with your air force. Syria, you can't do it by that way. The circumstances are so different. You need a Libya wide open with, with an insurgency moving forward, an armed insurgency moving forward, without you having any risk, because you can do it with the RAF, you can, you can bomb and kill from afar. And therefore, you're not going to get the political fallout and nor are you going to get the long term, you know, boots on the ground. How do you get them out again? And that's always been the the, the modern thinking. Indeed. Well, let's talk specifically now about money, because 2011 was the year that the SDSR really came into effect with the Ministry of Defence making sweeping cuts across all three services. Um, Jeff, you saw the reaction of troops in theatre as some of the announcements were made. What impact did that have on morale? Yes, although SDSR came in the October, the impact of it and, and, and the redundancies started to come in, in the last year. Um, troops in Afghanistan um, are obviously and professionally focused on the job that they're doing, but I did detect, uh, certainly at the beginning of this year, a subtle shift. People were starting to talk more about life and careers after Afghanistan. Would I have a job? What's the future of my So unit? they were generally worried when oh, they were in theatre? Uh, of course. I think that's a, you know, that's a natural human uh, uh, fear that you can understand. They are concerned about about their own future and the welfare and, and prospects for their families. So it's a slight distraction. They're professional enough not to let it impinge on the job they're doing, but it's there in the background all the time. Uh, Michael Codner, uh, once all these cuts have been implemented, do you think we'll still have a, a workable military force? Well, setting aside for a moment the um, mess over carriers and aircraft and all of that and some of the other illogical cuts that took place, uh, not that we didn't need to make the cuts, but that the way it was done and what the outcome was, Uh, We have a workable um, military force for the obligations of the British government. I don't think there's any problem with that. It's how much more we want to be able to do in order to um, project our influence around the world, insofar as we see that that's something that gets support from uh, the population and and, and also um, it can actually be uh, assessed as working. I mean, it's very difficult to put one's finger on whether we actually do get the sort of influence we think we expect by our use of military, which is very respected, um, around the world. So is that uh, the premium that we need to pay if we really consider that global influence is something that Britain needs to do. Mm. And Christopher, it's not just Britain that's been forced to make cuts. The Euro debt crisis has forced other countries to make similar cuts. What do you think this means for NATO and European defence? NATO is, and the EU, for example, quite often you find that members of the same, in the same countries, 
when you get find a lot of them are in the eurozone you discover of course that they're all facing the same sort of problems and the big questions although we have promises of maintaining certainly 1% increase in procurement spending or even 2% as as the NATO norm would have it people simply governments are not going to have the money to do it and when governments don't have the money to do it they start making cuts in education in the health service etc and that's when the public do get interested in all this and that's why the long term of what's been going on in the past 12 months will have an effect on NATO countries especially if you're going to have an election but it may not actually have an effect on what NATO can do and the selection of tasks for NATO to do and that's why in the state department at the moment they're considering this this idea of you know, of having the coalition of the willing rather than saying to NATO you ought to be do it you ought to be doing this and the important thing is to say well who ought to be doing it and so NATO is going along all right at the moment uh, but it's got to get out of the idea of blaming each other for not making a contribution Michael I think next year is very critical over NATO is the Chicago summit if the Chicago summit dodges the big issues then that's going to what be a problem what there? NATO needs to do is um, well the European members need to accept that a major purpose of NATO is to do the stuff that the Americans are not going to be able to do because they will be busy elsewhere and keeping the transatlantic um, group together but uh, but uh, spreading roles in the way that Libya demonstrated but they've got to sort out the problems of Libya and make the most of uh, all the internal problems that Libya displayed uh, and I, I personally think this is where I should commend uh, for NATO to be, um, to be very much strengthened even though predictions may be a little bit gloomy about politically where NATO strengthened as well politically strengthened as well and uh, it could in fact be one of the unifying factors for Europe with all the problems of the Eurozone and Britain falling apart sorting out who but has NATO what? could be one of the things and uh, uh, Scandinavians, East Europeans I think would all be very supportive of that ones who aren't part of the Euro- Eurozone because very it supportive would clarify of, everybody's role exactly and what contribution well, they should saying make. that one thing we do still hang together over is defence and security, um, even though we've got all these other messes. And also, by rationalising the, um, the forces, smart defence is the buzz that's going around mm-hmm. in NATO, uh, by rationalising it and some role specialisation all of this, you can actually get more for the money that is being spent, which is still quite a lot when you add it all up. Okay, so we've looked back at 2011. I'd like now to all concentrate on 2012. Time for Christopher to gaze into his crystal ball. First of all, let's look at a a story that's been making the headlines this week, the death of North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-il. Christopher... What's next for North Korea? Um, Next for North Korea is, is for the moment anyway, to be led by an inexperienced, unpredictable, um, youngish man um, who is merging into the idea of being a nuclear power. Uh, You have, as a precaution, sensibly, the South Koreans on high military alert. You have weaknesses showing up in the intelligence system because not knowing what was going on. Um, So nothing much is going to change, but everybody's political and strategic teeth will be set on edge by this. And especially, and don't forget, the people that could probably have more influence over, or should have more influence over uh, North Korea and anybody else will be the Chinese. So watch in 2012, how the Chinese treat and what reverence they give this new leader and also the reverence they give his uncle. 
His uncle and his aunt are the people that will probably run North Korea for the foreseeable future. All right, well, another story that's been in the news only yesterday, Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay have banned ships flying the flag of the Falkland Islands from docking in their ports. Uh, Michael Codner, do you think um, this is going to be a real cause for concern in 2012? The actual ba- banning of ships from docking isn't a particular problem because it's, it's, it's... They've done it already, haven't they? Really? And anyhow, it's relatively few... It tends to be fishing boats which are flagged for the Falklands. The, the big issues of pressure um, uh, over uh, sovereignty of the Falklands is clearly a major nuisance for the British government. And what is most important, of course, is that uh, you don't have what you have with the not review, and that's sending a message to the world that the United Kingdom is not interested in its overseas territories. Uh, and uh, the, you could say that the recent defence review uh, indicated perhaps with the reductions to the Navy, that uh, we have the same problem. And so it's most important next year that we get the rhetoric right and we don't start seeing, uh, say, further cuts to our naval presence. Uh, And Christopher, um, the Falklands, it's all about oil, isn't it? Well, it's always about offshore resources, isn't it? Um, But it's it's something more than that. Um, Let us remember that Argentina is not going to give up its claim. So therefore, every time they whisper even Malvinas somebody is going to get completely screwed up about the whole thing. But I think the future, and you look at long-term future, 10, 15, 20 years, the senses and the opportunities for cooperation in that region are enormous, and I think we should not ignore that. If we need to defend the Falklands, are we capable of doing that, Jeff? Uh, not alone, no. I mean, we would need to do, as we would do with any expeditionary warfare these days, um, an operation in alliance, and that would present a problem. I mean, would, how far would the Americans back us? Um, the hope, of course, is that it would not come to that, that this is more sabre-rattling. It's probably Buenos Aires not sending a very polite message that Prince William won't be too welcome when he gets there. But it's, you know, it's... They're just saying, um, watch out, we're aware of this, it's still an issue. Um, The military hope would be that, you know, given the fact that typhoons are there, that the military garrison is still there, uh, there's enough there, submarine on patrol more than likely, uh, to deter any uh, over-ambitious military adventure that the Argentines might might even uh, contemplate. All right, let, let's move on to the cuts and redundancies for 2012. Uh, who wants to volunteer the big, th- <laughs> the big things that are going to happen in the coming year on that one? Well, Michael? Michael's just studying it all the time. <laughs> but let's start with March, maybe, and we get more, 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 more ideas of uh, personnel cuts. Well, the, the, um, the plans for personal cuts are being uh, implemented uh, uh, as we go along. Um, I don't think there is anything particularly new for happening next year that's not already um, in the plan. The big uh, statement this year after the review uh, was in the summer when the reduction to the army were um, presented for the first time. And uh, that was perhaps a surprise to a lot of people because it was an inevitability. And uh, the compensating issues, the one of reform of reserves, uh, uh, they were presented together in a way of making the excuse that by cutting down the army we can replace them with a new type of reserve which is going to be much more useful. A, a huge, uh, let's move on to the, the Olympics, obviously a huge financial commitment uh, for the coming year. Uh, Christopher, how big is the risk of a terrorist attack? Uh, the, the risk is very high because it's an obvious target. And so if you happen to be a, a security officer, even a desk officer, you look at it and say, yeah. Um, and don't forget what the resources are going in. Certainly at the moment we expect 
for example, uh, 7,500. That's the allocation at the moment of, of, of troops to be part of the security operation. That will actually take 29,000 troops and personnel to actually implement. Now, where are you going to get those from? Uh, HMS Ocean is going to be in the Thames. There's going to be a huge coverage. I mean, it's rather like taking the Olympics in, 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 into a garrison and say, come on, how are we going to do this? I don't believe there has been an Olympics uh, so security conscious as this, uh, certainly not in my lifetime. I mean, there'll be incidents, go back to Munich, etc. Et but nobody has been saying, we cannot this time take risks. OK, another big event uh, next year will be the US presidential election. Uh, why is this so important to us, Christopher? Well, they're electing our president. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, you know... Never without controversy, Mr Lee. <laughs> no, no it's, tr it's true. I mean, we go back to uh, Michael, talking, well, Michael was talking about earlier, the, the coalition of the winning, uh, of the willing. We are very much part of that. A lot of our foreign policy actions are based on who is the president and what is American foreign policy. OK, finally, I'm going to ask each of you to tell me briefly what you think we'll be talking about this time next year. Michael, do you want to go first? Well, it's, it's huge uncertainty um, as ever uh, over Europe, um, over Iran. There's so much more talk now um, in official places about uh, attacks on Iran. There's the outcome of Syria. Um, uh, and um, there is, of course, the, uh, the issue of whether the funding cuts that have been made by governments uh, in defence uh, are going to be sufficient in the medium to longer term, whether we have more. But finally, the coalition is going to have to start preparing for the next election, issues over a difference of view over the nuclear deterrent, which could be a big cost-saving if um, things didn't go the way the Conservatives would want it to go. Jeff Mead. Well, as the only uh, honorary Helmandy around the table, uh, you'd <laughs> expect me to talk about Afghanistan. I think we are going to be worrying about those Libyan air defence missiles, which just went in the confusion over the overthrow of Gaddafi. Where are they? Let's hope they don't get used uh, against British forces in southern Afghanistan. We're going to be certainly into the almost the post-Afghanistan stage. The talk is already about uh, about uh, drawdown. We'll lose 500 troops from Afghanistan. That's going to be the focus, the transition. And I think we will be talking about talks having started with the Taliban, but that very much depends on Iran and Pakistan. And they call the shots. And finally, Christopher Lee, what's in your crystal ball? OK, very quickly, some of these notes here. New defence cuts, maybe. Uh, the realism of the way the economy is going. That is going to play a big part for all of us. The Olympics, fingers crossed, we won't be talking about the Olympics. Um, but if we are, it's going to be rather a tragedy. Syria, wouldn't mind putting a couple of quid on the nose that um, the president's brother will be removed by people inside uh, Syria. He commands four div. He is effectively running the operation against the uh, opposition. Uh, why we're removing people? Iran, Ahmadinejad. He is on the edge at the moment. He could go. So we could be talking about that, and therefore a new regime and what happens. Um, I, the Americans are going to lift somebody else. In a, with the Taliban, maybe a Taliban leader. That's going to be interesting. And the other thing is, of course, won't President Sarkozy still be there and change well, forever? And that is all we have time for this week and, in fact, for this year. My thanks to our panel experts, Jeff Mead, Michael Codner and our resident analyst, Christopher Lee. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.